Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, it is sometimes called. Acts chapter 8 is where I'll be reading from. Acts chapter 8, starting at at verse uh, 4. You uh, might remember that last week Ray preached on uh, Stephen and the, the, the death, the, the stoning to death of, of Stephen and how because of his martyrdom, the, uh, the church spreads, right? The church is pushed out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas and the people begin to take the gospel out and uh, um, one of those who is uh, sent out because of Stephen's death is a man named Philip. And that's who we're going to read about in Acts chapter 8. So, uh, Philip, if you're willing and able, would you stand? We'll give our attention to God's word. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed." So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, 
Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Holy Spirit, would you open our um, eyes and our hearts and our minds to see Jesus, to not just be um, hearers of your word, but doers, that it would transform us. Um, and we, uh, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated, please. So I have to confess something to you. I love magic. <laughs> I love magic. Harry Houdini, Siegfried and Roy, uh, David Copperfield, Penn and Teller. My favorite magician is David Blaine. Um, to me, sleight of hand and uh, making things disappear, it's just fun. But my wife doesn't love magic because she says it makes her mad. She just wants to know, how, how did they do that? I'm so mad right now, right? Um, but I love magic. Magic captivates people. Um, a good magician never reveals his secrets, right? Um, remember, uh, remember this? Magic eight ball. Did you have one of these growing up? I did. My, my kids just got this like, like a week ago and they swear to me that it's real, right? <laughs> uh, uh, so magic, right? Magic. Um, is this going to be a good sermon? Ask again later. Okay. <laughs> magic has been around a long time. In fact, some people say that magic is the second oldest profession, right? Um, so it's not surprising to find magic in the Bible. In fact, there are many examples of magic in the Bible, but this passage that we read is one of the, the most famous ones about Simon Magus, the Greek word, Simon the Magician. Here's a painting of Simon the Magician. You see him there in the black holding money, trying to buy uh, the power to give the gift of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John who are laying their hands on the Samaritans as the Spirit is uh, descending. Ma magic, right? Magic in the Bible, though, is different from what we tend to think of um, when we think of you know, entertainment magic. Magic in the Bible is different. Dennis Johnson is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. He writes... He says, in the Hellenistic Roman world, magic focused on the manipulation of supernatural forces for the benefit of individuals or for harm to their enemies. Magic promised control over the uncontrollable in private experience, romance, birth, illness, death, business, and travel. By invoking the names of one or more gods or demigods, sometimes using as many divine names as he could muster from any and every religious background, Together with the appropriate rituals, uh, the magician assured his clients that he could expel demons, heal diseases, warm the heart of a reluctant lover, bring misfortune on a political rival, ward off storms and pirates at sea, enable a wife to conceive a son, and so on. Closely related to astrology, magic sometimes claimed to offer insight into the future as well. To people crushed by oppressive, immutable fate, Magic promised the possibility of gaining control 
of the unseen forces that impinged on one's life. So when you read about magic in the Bible, don't think about card tricks. Um, Think about the occult. Some translations use the word in this passage, sorcery, right? Because because magic is about power, about trying to to get uh, power. Uh, We read in the passage, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he was himself somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. A whole city in Samaria was under the spell of Simon the magician. They called him the power of God. Until one day, through a Jew named Philip, the true power of God came to them. And what happened when the true power of God came to them? Well, that's what we're going to reflect on this morning. Um, There's an outline on the inside cover of your bulletin uh, if you want to use it. First thing, the power of God, the source. What's the source? When... When Philip comes to Samaria, the power of God is on full display. Just like the apostles earlier in the book of Acts, amazing miracles take place. Verse 7 says, uh, unclean spirits crying out with loud voices came out of many of them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I mean, this is amazing stuff, right? Incredible things Uh, apparently Simon wasn't all that powerful because when Philip comes, there were plenty of people who were still demon-possessed and needed uh, physical healing, but that's no match for the power of God. Why were all these miracles happening? Why was all this taking place? The, The text calls them signs. What does a sign do? A sign points to something. Right? A sign isn't the source. The sign points to the source. And so what's the source of this outburst of divine power? Look, look again at how the passage began. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. What was, what was the source? It was the preaching of the word. It was the proclamation of Christ. It was the gospel, right? Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The reason the power of God broke out among the Samaritans was because the gospel came to them. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What does the word gospel mean? You know this. The gospel means Good news. Good news about what? The weather. Good news about, well, look at verse 12. They believed Philip as he preached good news, as he preached the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is a New Testament term. It's not in the Old Testament, although there's, you know, kind of uh, allusions to it, but the kingdom of God is first used in the New Testament by Jesus. 
When he began his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, by which he meant the rule of God, right? The reign of God, the dominion of God over all things and over all powers has begun. God had promised throughout the Old Testament that one day he would do something to deal with sin and death and all the brokenness of the world. The good news is that he has acted, right? That day has come. The kingdom of God is here because the king has come. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God has inaugurated his kingdom. One day, that kingdom will be perfected, right? One day, uh, all things will be made new. One day, we will all live harmoniously under the reign of God. But in the meantime, until then, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the good news of the kingdom of God is that he has begun the process of putting the world to rights. And that process begins with our own acknowledging his rule and his reign in our lives. The Bible uses the word repent. Repent, turn back to God, submit to his sovereign lordship, and you will experience his power in your life beginning to remake you and reshape you and restore you and make you new. The kingdom of God has come. That means the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness has been defeated, right? The, the enemy kingdom has been overthrown by the name of Jesus Christ. Remember what magicians do? They, they would invoke names of gods and demigods, as many names as they could think of to try to get control and power over forces that were out of their control. The name of Jesus has power that no other name has. By his name, people are healed. We receive forgiveness by calling on his name, forgiveness of our sins. We um, find true hope in his name. Earlier in the book of Acts, we read, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. As followers of Jesus, what is it that we have to give to our friends and families and coworkers and neighbors? We don't, we don't tell them good advice. We don't give them kind of here's seven steps to have a good life, a good marriage. Um, here's some kind of moral improvements you can make. No, we give them good news, right? Something has happened. God has acted. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no power in advice or steps or more improvements. The power of God is in the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Our culture has become less religious, but more spiritual, right? We're less religious, but we're more spiritual. And even uh, I think 2019 was called the, the year of the crystal because of the, the resurgence of people buying crystals uh, to, to, to try to find meaning and purpose in life and power, right? The resurgence of um, astrology and, and tarot cards because we're searching for answers. We're searching for a way to make sense 
of the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our lives because we feel powerless. Kimberly uh, Shoemate was um, a, uh, living as a witch. Uh, and, I mean, you wouldn't have been able to tell that just by seeing her in the grocery store, but that was her orientation in life, her way of trying to, to find power. And when that began to fail her and she felt like she had come to the end of herself, uh, she finally decided she'd go and, and, and walk into a church. And later she was reflecting on what it was like being there and, and, and what happened to her. And she writes this, she says, looking back, I wonder how the church members stood having me in their midst for so long. I was angry and exasperated as I sat listening to their good news. How could there be only one way to God? At the end of each message, I marched down the aisle to the pastor and began firing off an onslaught of questions. After three or four weeks of verbal sparring, he humbly offered the associate pastor's ear. I made my rounds from one elder to another, finally ending up at a Friday night Bible study looking for answers. As I sat on the floor in the leader's living room, I felt a peace amidst this group of people who seemed to care about each other. After the study, Scott, the leader, patiently listened to my New Age arguments. But one by one, the scriptures I'd carefully prepared to punch holes in the gospel came back at me with hurricane force. Scott's words, but especially the Bible's words, confounded my cosmic view. After we'd sat there for an hour debating, I was exhausted. My hardened heart and argumentative nature finally had enough. Driving home, my mind ached as I replayed Scott's words. All the Old Testament and New Testament verses had one oddly familiar voice, one tone, one heart. I wondered how could a book written by so many different people over the course of hundreds of years fit together perfectly as if one amazing storyteller had written the whole thing. The Holy Spirit began melting my vanity and arrogance with a power stronger than any hex, incantation, or spell I'd ever used. Suddenly, the blindfold I'd worn for almost 30 years was stripped away, and instantly I knew what I'd been searching for. Jesus, the same God I'd neglected, whose name I'd used as profanity, whom I'd flat out rejected, was the one who'd sent his son to suffer for me, to take the guilty verdict so that I could be found innocent. My eyes filled with tears as I exchanged the darkness with which I'd grown so accustomed for the light of God's truth. It still moves me to tears to think he'd waited through all those years of anger, disappointment, fear, and bad choices. All the mistakes I'd ever made were wiped clean. It's the power of the gospel, right? The power of the word of God, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. I love what it says in verse eight, as a result of the gospel coming to Samaria, it says there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. We, we sing it at Christmas time, right? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The gospel changed the whole city. It brought joy to the joyless. It brought hope to the hopeless. It brought light into the darkness. Have you experienced the power of the gospel? Do you know this power? The, the word power in the Greek is um, the gospel is the power of God. It's the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite, right? The, the power of God. When you, when you carry around the gospel, when you tell people 
about Jesus. You're carrying God's dynamite, right? Not to, to blow up and hurt, but to heal and restore and bring life and joy. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And not just salvation, but there's something else amazing that, that this power of God leads to in this passage. And it leads to unity. The power of God to produce unity. It, uh, it is significant that when, when the Christians are scattered from Jerusalem um, because of persecution, the first place Philip goes is Samaria. Do you remember what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1? He said to his disciples, you will, be, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's a map of uh, the world at that time, the, the, the Middle East and the area of Israel. So, okay, so you see Jerusalem right there, right? There's Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria up here in the north and then the ends of the earth. It's like Jesus is giving them like concentric circles, right? He's showing that this gospel is going to go forth um, to the ends uh, of the earth. Samaria, um, the Jews and the Samaritans had a thousand year history of hostility. Think about that, a thousand years of division. It started with, um, it began after David's son Solomon died. And the nation uh, of Israel split into two, to the north and the south. And so you had Judah in the south, and the north became known as Samaria. And so north and south, Judah and Samaria, the ancient capital of Jerusalem, the place of worship was in the south, in Judah. And so what did they do in Samaria? They made their own place of worship on Mount uh, Gerizim. During the exile, those uh, from the, they were exiled at different times. So when uh, the, the southern people were exiled, they stayed pure. Right? They didn't intermarry uh, with non-Jewish people. But the, the, uh, those in the north, the Samaritans, intermingled. Uh, and, uh, and so they were seen by the Jews as half-breeds, kind of half-Jewish, half-Gentile, and, and despised. Um, so you have the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Jews believed in the whole thing. So you can see a thousand years of this, right? A thousand years of hostility and hatred and division. So that uh, in John 4, it just simply says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that's pretty blunt and pretty straightforward. Like we don't get along. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus comes and he begins to poke holes in that dividing wall, right? He, the woman at the well was a Samaritan. One of uh, the parables that Jesus tells, the hero of that parable is a Samaritan. And uh, in fact, we call him the, the good Samaritan, right? But then here in Acts chapter eight, that wall comes crashing down as the power of God brings unity between Jews and Samaritans. 
Did you notice something uh, strange in this passage um, that uh, Philip, he, when he preaches the gospel, people believe and they're baptized, but they didn't receive what? Or, or better yet, who, right? The Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Um, that should stand out to us. That's not the normal pattern in the New Testament. The normal pattern is that the Holy Spirit comes upon you when you believe. Uh, and um, so why did God delay giving the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans? Well, he delayed the giving of the Holy Spirit because he wanted to emphasize the new gospel unity that now existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Because if, if, uh, if it had all just kind of gone as normal, it might have been easy to think, okay, well, now there's, uh, there's a Samaritan church. Right? And there's a Jewish church, and we're going to continue to be divided. And God is kind of highlighting this to say, no, there's not two, there are not two churches, there's one church. Right? One church in Christ. And so he delays the, the Holy Spirit. He waits for the apostles to send Peter and John to come so that they kind of get that, that affirmation and that uh, connection with the church in Jerusalem. There's one church. There's one people. The Jews and Samaritans are now united under Christ. He waited for Peter and John to come. And it's amazing that it's John in particular that comes um, because you might remember what happened in Luke chapter nine. It says Jesus was going to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> to which Jesus rebuked them, like, guys, come on. Um, right? they, their hatred for the Samaritans is revealed. Right? Well, let, let's call down fire on them and, and consume them. John, who, like all the other Jews, hated the Samaritans so much that he wanted call down fire from heaven on them. It was that same John that now comes and lays his hands on them, not to harm them, but to pray for them, to pray that they might receive the same Holy Spirit that he had and that they might become part of his family. The power of the gospel, right? The power of God to unite um, people who've been divided for a thousand years. Um, only, only the power of God can do that. Um, the power of God, uh, the later speaking of Jews and Gentiles, that next circle out, right? Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, the Gentiles. Later, Paul tells the Ephesians, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Only the power of God in the gospel can create unity where there is division and hatred. Do you think that we still need the power of God today in our world, in our world today to create unity where there's division and hatred. Um, William Willimon is a bishop in the Methodist church. 
He, uh, he grew up in South Carolina in the 1950s. And uh, he said his childhood education came from listening to his uncles argue at the Sunday dinner table at his grandmother's house. And uh, so he tells this one story. He says, um, his uncle Charles once pronounced, some of the ignorantest people come from Edgefield, I tell you, Willie, and not only the Baptists. That's the gospel truth, agreed Uncle Gene in a rare affirmation of another uncle's adjudication. Thieving low country politicians out of Barnwell ruined this state, added Uncle Henry, moving wider the geographical bounds of political ineptitude. During a major political debate one Sunday at table, I ventured, are we going to vote for General Eisenhower? Stunned, awkward dismay around. Mama maternally patted my head. No, dear, he is a Republican. We are Democrats. Murmurs of agreement in the assembly. Never met anybody with any sense in the army, added one of the uncles, especially the generals. Please pass the chicken, government leeches. Consumption resumed. Are there Republicans around here, I persisted. Aggravated silence. Mama adjusted the napkin in her lap and patiently responded, no dear, not that we know of. Well, where are the Republicans, I continued. I'd seen pictures of them on stamps in my album. And uncle dropped his, uh, his uh, fork, clanging into his plate and threw up his hands. Good Lord, God Almighty. Well, they tend to live in Illinois and Michigan, places of that nature, she sighed patiently. Why are they Republicans and we are Democrats? Those at the table believed mama had been overly indulgent. Child, if people live by choice in places like Illinois and Michigan, they will be strange in other ways too. Amen, somebody said. And that was that. Politics. Vaccines. Family feuds. Rich and poor. Black and white. Only the gospel has the power to bring together divided people. Because the gospel makes us children of the same father. Right? In the gospel, you're no longer divided. You're brothers and sisters. You're in the same family. So you should feel more kindred with a Christian who disagrees with you on politics than a non-Christian who doesn't. Do you? You should feel more kindred with a Christian who disagrees with you on politics than with a non-Christian who doesn't. You should feel more at home with a Christian homeless person than you do with a non-Christian who's a member of your club. Do you? It's the power of God, right? Only the power of God can do that, to bring together people who otherwise would be divided. How do you know the gospel has penetrated deeply into your life? You know the gospel has penetrated deeply into your life when you're not constantly wanting to call down fire on people who are different from you. Instead, you pray for them. You long that God would make you one with them. Philip Yancey tells a, that um, a modern Indian, Indian pastor told him, he said, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, he said, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, 
races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. You know, for a thousand years, Israel remained divided between north and south. But then with the coming of the gospel, right, they were brought back together. Only the gospel can bring together uh, people who've been divided. And how does it happen? It happens because the true heir of David comes, right? The true king comes to reunite his people. Maybe he can reunite us too. So here's what we've seen. Through Philip, the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ comes to Samaria, right? And people believe they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, and a centuries-old wall of hostility is broken down. There's life and there's joy. I mean, this is a revival that breaks out in Samaria. But in the middle of this amazing display of the power of God, there is a warning. And the warning is illustrated by Simon the magician. Did you notice uh, what it said in verse 13? It said, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That sounds like Simon became a true believer. But then at the end of the passage, Peter says to Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that If possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you because I see that you're in the gall of bitterness. You're in the bond of iniquity. That sounds like Simon wasn't a true believer. In fact, his his response to Peter's call to repentance is pretty lackluster. He says, pray for me to the Lord. He doesn't pray himself. He asks, well, pray for me that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. He seems more concerned that nothing bad will happen to him, then he is really truly sorrowful and repentant. And then that's it. Simon's story, Simon's fate is left open-ended. We're not told what happens. And that's the point. That's the point. The point is that Simon is meant to be a warning to us. Most scholars believe when they read this passage um, and based off of church history, we know that that Simon did not repent. In fact, he goes on to become uh, an opponent of the apostles and an opponent of the gospels. He was not a true believer. So what happened? Well, look again at verses 18 through 20. It says, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, literally, to hell with you and your money. That's kind of what he said. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon's attempt to purchase the power to give the people the Holy Spirit revealed the true nature of his heart, and it revealed a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel that Simon had. And here it is. You can't obtain the gift of God with money. There's nothing that you can do to buy the gift of God, or there's nothing that you can do to merit salvation. 
Now, we have a name for this concept. We call it grace, right? Grace. Simon never understood grace. He thought of the gospel as a commodity, and he thought of salvation as a business transaction. Here's why Simon is such a warning for us. Simon believed, right? Simon was baptized. Simon became like a Philip fanboy. He followed him around and and hung on every single one of his uh, words. He saw miracles happen. Simon professed faith, but Simon didn't possess faith because he never understood grace. And what's interesting is that Simon's name uh, has held on in history. Um, the, the, the act of trying to buy ecclesiastical office or trying to buy religious status is known as simony. Right? It's called simony. When you try to buy a religious status or you know, buy religious office or in the, the time of the Reformation, it was buying indulgences, a way to try to um, earn favor and status religiously. Um, and, you know, I see it happen all the time. Uh, people come to Seven Rivers and they were in a church and um, they, you know, uh, they were baptized in that church and they, um, they participated in that church. They, they gave their money. They were there uh, most Sundays and, and heard the sermons and um, they thought they were Christians. And they came down to Florida to retire and they, they come to Seven Rivers and they heard something they'd never heard before, grace. They heard the gospel and, then, and they say something like, I thought I was a Christian, but now I'm not so sure because my relationship with God was a business transaction. I thought that by my good works, I could place God in my debt. Truthfully, we've all been guilty of the sin of simony at points in our lives, right? Um, We can fall back into a performance mindset instead of a gospel one. Paul challenged the Galatians in this. He said to them, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? I mean, you've fallen under another power, a false power. Who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by doing, by meriting, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun by the spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh? The Galatians had fallen back into a performance mindset with God. Do you remember um, what it said about Simon in the passage? He told everyone that he was someone great. But when you begin to get the grace of God in the gospel, you give up your pretensions to greatness. You, You give up your need for power. You humble yourself. You confess there is a God and I am not him. I was talking to a guy one time and, uh, and I was asking him, I said, you know, are you a Christian? And, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I said, great. Well, I mean, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And, uh, and he said, well, I, you know, I, I do good things. I, um, I try to follow God's law. I um, try to be a good person. I, um, you know, do what he says. And, 
And, uh, and I was just discouraged because I, I thought I, he never said anything about Jesus. Uh, and, but I knew he'd heard it before. I knew that he'd heard about grace. And um, so uh, it, was, it was like all of a sudden the light bulb went off my head and I, the, the Holy Spirit kind of reminded me of his story um, because this guy had spent time in prison. And, uh, and, and I said to him, listen, I think I get it. You know, in society, right, you, you, you're now out and you're trying to make your life work, right? Nobody's going to give you grace. You're going to have to work for it, right? You're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to fight for it and to, to, to earn people's trust again and, and um, uh, because you lost it. But listen, you can't do that with Jesus, right? He doesn't work like that. I know you want to run away from your past, um, and, uh, but, but don't come to Jesus telling him all the good things that you either do or can do. Right? Own your unworthiness because, because that is the very thing that makes you unworthy. We all need grace. You need grace, and so does the uh, Harvard graduate who becomes a judge and lives in a white picket fence with a family and is citizen of the year. You both equally need grace because neither one of you can merit it. Neither one of you can be good enough for God to love you. The grace of Jesus is what makes you a Christian, not anything that you do. And when I told him that, it was like, you could, I mean, visibly, you could just like see this weight was lifted off of his shoulders. And he had a big smile and he said, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I believe that. Do you? Do you believe that? grace of God in the gospel. I told you that I love magic. What I love most about magic is people's reactions. When the card is turned over, or when it's revealed, when the trick is finally um, seen, uh, I love people's reactions. They're amazed. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh. Um, I love people's reactions. Do you know what I love about being a pastor? I love people's reactions when they get grace, when they get the gospel. I love it when people sing and dance and weep tears of joy because they realize amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because it's not magic, it's real. It's the power of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you fall on us afresh so that we might know your power? The power to rescue and save sinners. The power to unite people who would otherwise be divided. Would you amaze us afresh with your grace? And would you send us out with that message to the world? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, 
please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.